Hello, welcome to Louder Than Words, where we talk about ideas that improve lives. I'm Jules Pretty from the University of Essex. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the show Andrew Sims and Nikki Saunter from the Rapid Transition Alliance and New Weather Institute in the UK. Our topic today is hope, a powerful concept for dark times, an idea that leads to agency and action. And so we're going to be exploring a whole range of contemporary issues through the lens of hope today. So Andrew and Nikki, a warm welcome to you both to the show. Uh, let's begin with a bit of background about the Rapid Transition Alliance. Tell us about um, RTA and the New Weather Institute project and the wide range of campaigns united by your idea of evidence-based hope. Andrew. Well, that's our key phrase. And it came out of a conversation that many of us were having back in 2017 with uh, a mutual colleague of ours, um, Professor Peter Newell from Sussex University, because we were looking around. The climate science was getting clearer and clearer. But wherever we looked, nowhere did we see people actually talking about the kind of change at the speed and scale that the climate science said was necessary. And we thought one of the reasons for that is that people find it very hard to believe in the possibility of that kind of change. So we went out to do a bit of due diligence, in effect, to test our idea that it, we did have the ability to do that. Um, so we started gathering evidence-based hope. Um, and what surprised us when we started to look, and before we launched the Rapid Transition Alliance, we sort of on a shoestring um, or non-existent budget, we went around the country, held various seminars, and we talked to people about, are there circumstances in which our towns and cities have changed? Are there circumstances in which our economic policies have changed? And we found that the more and more we looked, the more examples that there were. Um, and the sheer variety of circumstances in which this kind of change um, happened w was quite extraordinary. And I mean, just looking over the course of the last century or so, the um, it's sometimes in very extreme circumstances, like during wartime and the so-called, you know, the home front. And you looked at the speed with which, and we were looking at timeframes of between five and 10 years, because that's what the climate science was saying. And we saw how the big home front war effort in, in the UK and in other countries saw massive conservation of food and energy and materials, but more than that, it created a bit of a new social contract that after the war in the UK led within the space of three years from sort of idea to implementation, the NHS. We saw the social housing um, programmes, Homes Fit for Heroes, as they called it, whereby given the difficulty we seem to have with the housing issue today, back then in the 50s and the 60s, under both Conservative and Labour governments, they were building social housing at the rate of up to a quarter of a million new homes a year way beyond anything that we've seen recently. But there are many other circumstances too, like the um, energy saving measures that were introduced during the, the OPEC energy crises of the 1970s, or even really arcane issues. We looked at um, plumbing in the UK. You know, it's hard to remember now, but it was only two generations ago that about a quarter of UK homes didn't have an indoor shower, bath or toilet. In the space of two decades, that fell to just 1%. And an almost completely forgotten example of the speed with which we can transform our homes. The UK had a big switch from what was then known as town gas to natural gas. 17 million homes 
were converted in the space of eight years, 40 million appliances. And now when we're sitting back and we're saying, how can we switch from gas to heat pumps to proper renewable sources? We need to remember that kind of ambition and the ability to coordinate from the grassroots to the industry to government to make it happen. But there's so many other examples as well, which I'm sure we'll get a chance to go into from the end of the Cold War, when we shifted from military to civilian industries during the financial crisis, when we re-regulated banks and found public um, resources to stabilise the economy to one of my favourites, one of my favourites, which um, simply because it was so unexpected and then because it was very recent, just over a decade ago, when that unpronounceable volcano in Iceland erupted and overnight the airlines um, in um, the Northern Hemisphere ground to a halt. Now, we'd been led to believe that these were the vital arteries of the modern global economy that we could not live without. And yet, overnight, people adapted. Supermarkets changed their suppliers. People shifted onto other forms of transport. They car shared. The um, bus operators put on more buses. The railways took the strain. Um, and even when um, Jens Stoltenberg, who was Norway's prime minister at the time, was trapped at the UN in New York, he ran his parliament from his iPad. So it was extraordinary that when the moment occurred, we discovered this incredible ability to change things really, really, really quickly. And of course, perhaps the biggest example, which perhaps we can spend some time looking into because of the sheer range and depth that it revealed about our ability to rapidly change how we live and how we we work and how we organize the economy has been the experience, the traumatic and difficult experience of the pandemic of the last few years. Because what's interesting about that is the sheer, is the sheer comprehensive nature of how we adapted, about how town centers were in many cases really closed down to traffic and opened up to walkers and cyclists, how shops were, um, non-essential shops were closed and, and you had supermarkets actually telling people to, you know, buy only what you need as if that's not what we should do all the time anyway. People switched to kind of cooking much more at home, making and mending their own things. There was rapid industrial conversion when people, industries like the brewing industries and the cosmetics industries shift to making sort of personal protective equipment and, and sanitizer and even Formula One motor engineers started helping make um, low cost breathing aids for, for hospitals and our working patterns, business flying ended overnight. Homelessness was, was, was ended. One of those social problems that you thought were, you know, it, it almost impossible to end. There were measures that brought that to an end. Um, we rediscovered nature and different ways of working. So uh, I think we're living at this moment when we need to have this rapid change. We need to believe in the possibility of that change. And I think we're surrounded by the evidence-based hope that the Alliance talks about that shows how we can move forward. Brilliant. That's fantastic. So the, a lot of those are responses to events. And I think maybe what we can come back to is how, we, how we're trying to choose paths and transitions and transformations deliberately as opposed to kind of response to a volcano or a pandemic or so forth. So that's that's great. Uh, Nikki, tell us a bit about what you do with the Rapid Transition Alliance and perhaps some of the kind of more local specifics around this kind of evidence-based hope. Um, so my role has been uh, sort of two-pronged. One is to look after the Alliance membership. So the Alliance itself is an organisation, a global organisation with uh, member organisations all around the world. 
um, and that's been part of its strength. So a lot of our gathering of these examples has been to look particularly to countries outside our sort of known environment and try to um, learn a bit from other places. And, and that's a particular uh, interest of mine is, is sometimes we get very hooked on the technology of change when actually it's, uh, it's also it's about changing our minds, isn't it? And, and understanding where we are now in order to make a change going forward. Um, but I've always been also been working um, together with you and some other pe some other people on a project called uh, Hope Tales, which has been uh, really really good fun and taking things perhaps in a slightly different um, direction, looking a bit more to what you were talking about the future. How do we collaborate better together? And this is. Um, uh, based on the idea of coming together for a particular um, afternoon or evening time slot, bringing a group of people to with some thoughts, some uh, short uh, ideas, interventions, performances, might be a song, a, um, a story, a bit of music on a particular theme, and then using those uh, performances together and and to uh, obviously stimulates each other in the room. We have a good time together. It's a it's it's fun, which is an important part of this whole mindset change, isn't it? And um, and from that, we then afterwards put together a little book, uh, which we've called a chat book, and uh, those are um, sort of reoccurrences or reenlivening the idea of a chat book from the seventeenth century where they were used as little um, uh, cheap publications where people could get access to folk tales, ideas, stories, probably scurrilous tales of what was going on locally. I have to say we haven't had enough scurrilous tales of what was going on locally in our own chapbooks. They've been very, um, very uh, clean and proper and, and beautifully designed too. And the idea is with these little books that they're there for people to enjoy and perhaps also to make comments in the back. We left a space in the back for people to write what they're thinking about it and perhaps to pass it on. So again, it's not, although it is a lovely thing, it's perhaps not something to keep, it's something to pass on, share, transmit. So those are some of the ideas that we want to get across. And we've had three themes so far. We've had um, hope um, under the overarching idea of, of hope for the future, hope for a sustainable future together. We've done uh, one event on looking at air, one on land and one on water. And the next one, we're looking for, uh, to, to do one on fire as well. And there may be other subjects. I think it's one of those um, ideas that can probably roll and roll. And if other people want to copy it, that's absolutely fine by us because that's part of the, the Rapid Transition Alliance is, is um, duplicate and duplicate and duplicate. Mm. That's great. Well, they, they, I'm interested in in let's let's take that those notions of of transition, of change, of deliberative transformation, transgression as well. Perhaps kind of seeking to do something that's outside the kind of current rules because of the of the kind of mess that we find ourselves in 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 lots of social and ecological contexts. Um, tell us a bit more about that. That's uh, Nikki. You've talked about kind of personal change but then also social and uh, widespread kind of country level change those those different levels kind of interact in 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 sometimes complex ways and yet we're trying to find a way to understand how to make this change and as easy as possible rather than you know something that's going to be an awful struggle and we're going to have to beat ourselves and others up to kind of get through to the Dealing with, for example, the climate crisis, probably the most 
proximate concern of all of us um, before it gets too bad. So, Andrew, thoughts about that kind of those that's that transition thing itself, the personal as well as the social? Well, perhaps one of the clearest examples of that is the emergence of the transition towns initiatives, which are still really relatively young and had a sort of fairly meteoric rise in terms of the number of initiatives. And what's interesting about them is that they are very emergent. They're very much um, growing out of circumstances within a community about what it matters to that community and what that community needs. So in one area, it might be a lot to do with food and local food sourcing. In another area, it might be to do with community renewable energy. In another area, it might be to do with housing or, or public transport. But taking an example about how you can allow and enable those sorts of roots up initiatives to flourish and the obstacles that they face. If you look at a country like the UK, in which because of the extreme um, unpredictability and changeability of national level policy with regard to, say, for example, renewables and the de facto ban that there's been on onshore wind, you've had a national level obstacle and block to energy trying to drive change at the local level. And I think one of the questions there is what sort of policy environment do you need at a national level that can free local areas to do things that they want to do anyway? And I think there are other aspects to do with power where you get clashes around that. If you were to look, for example, at the big questions around food, one of the great challenges about greening our urban spaces and our cities um, incorporates the ideas of making those cities not entirely, but perhaps more able um, to feed themselves. And some of the examples that we have on rapidtransition.org look at the great success of urban horticulture. But there, you're also up against the power of the supermarkets and their control of logistical and supply chains, and the fact that they're incredibly fossil fuel dependent as well. So wherever you look at these issues, where you see people with energy and motivation trying to make change happen, like with the transition towns in initiatives at the local level, sooner or later, quite often they come ac across obstacles that, that need removing. And very often those obstacles are to do with you know, central government or they're to do with the incumbent actors in economic sectors, whether it's the energy companies or the big food companies. Now, some of the experimental ways in which people have been looking to try and kind of take back a little bit of control in a positive way at local level is by convening citizens' assemblies to review how their local area, their city. I mean, Leeds was a very good example where they got, got together an, a network of sort of non-specialist citizens who reviewed um, evidence from experts. And very often when you do that, what happens is you come up with more radical proposals than national political parties come up with. So if you trust people at the local level, people who know what their local area needs and you give them the information, they will quite often see a more rapid and progressive pathway through these problems than if we just leave it to national politics. So I think one of our challenges is how we open up that process of giving people the resources, giving people the decision-making abilities um, to make change happen in their local areas. So it's very interesting how, how so many, I mean, pretty well every aspect of kind of how we live um, as kind of social animals is kind of playing into this space, that the, the engagement of local people 
in the process of change results in greater innovation, more ideas, more supported ideas, because you've had a process to bring people together in the first place. Citizens' assemblies in Ireland have been very successful, haven't they? They have national level ones that are now in the constitution for, for addressing big questions. And it strikes me that that trust is perhaps something that people will recognize really well quite quickly and, and feel as though something different is happening. Nikki, did you want to kind of talk a bit about about kind of some of the local stuff? Pick a place, pick Watch It, for example, in in uh, on the coast close to you, and how how a place um, through different forms of engagement comes up with new ideas. I mean, no exemplar is perfect, is it? But it's on a journey. This transition that we've been talking about, and interesting things happen, which then become instructive for others. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, well, there's a couple of examples uh, locally that sort of are good examples of exactly what Andrew's been talking about. And the the example of um, the Onion Collective, uh, they should get an award just for their name, actually, based in in, uh, East Quay in Watch It. Um, And actually, I think East Quay was one of those places that wasn't really a place and has now become a place because of of them and their activities. So Watch It is a small harbour on the north somerset coast which is in the southwest of england and um some years ago i think it's probably about a decade ago now a group of women got together who had ended up in this small town that was rather fallen on hard times it had a very large industry there paper mill company which had closed down and like like other towns dependent on single industries it was really struggling and these women were at a time of life i think where they had young children or children who just gone to school and they were all feeling a bit like they wanted to do something that was more substantial um, but they were tied to this place and they weren't about to to go commuting to london because in those days or even today it's a very long way from west somerset to to a big city even to bristol for work and so they got together this idea of regenerating, rejuvenating their own environment, their own community. And they did it in a very, very collaborative way. And it was very difficult. So that's the other thing that's important to remember. It wasn't like they all, they were a mixture of incomers and people who were born and bred in that area, and which I think was good and useful. But it was difficult, the process of of having trying to infuse people who've been very crushed locally with the idea of doing something on scale and large and they had an idea of bringing using art as the way of doing this which in itself for some people is difficult some people don't feel that art is a part of their life particularly or it's for somebody else to do and these people thought they would have some kind of community art project at scale so a big stylish incredible gallery complex in this little harbour town, which is a bit of an audacious thing to think of doing. And fast forwarding, for a long time, they were in a series of containers on the waterfront and they had a container art project. And fast forwarding to today, they had a large award of several million pounds eventually to to build this structure, which does look like a sort of pile of containers in a shape reminiscent of a shipyard. And it's sort of still surrounded by the shipyard that by boats, well, it's a boatyard really, by people tinkering on their boats and managing their boats all around them. So it's not a a pristine, uh, cleaned up, beautiful place. It's still very much embedded in the town. 
and and now it it draws um, exhibitions of a national international standard, and they're free, and it has a cafe, and it has huge community um, level, a uh, lot of community access in the in the space outside it. Lots of events going on. It's very connected into the town, and it's also had some quite a lot of exhibitions there, which have have connected to other towns which have been similarly crushed by the loss of their industry. So. They've had exhibitions focusing also on that thread, so drawing um, parallels between their own situation and, and the situations of others. And they're doing a very interesting piece of work at the moment with a, an app that looks at how community works, trying to work out how the threads of our lives join together with each other. How do we do the magical stuff that we do when we, when we come together and work together? Uh, do, you think, do you think people's idea of hope has been changed as a result of the project because there's something about before something happens um getting people across a threshold feeling as though it's worth doing something that's a really difficult step as you as you just said um and that might be a moment for ideas of inspiration and um uh, saying this is possible or looking over here because they've done it or looking over there because they've done it in a in a different culture or country um, but then, when you when you've achieved something, is there have you observed um, individual change that people's capacity then changes? They feel differently about themselves, feel pride, hope in different kinds of ways. Yes, I think very much so. I think that's definitely happened in watches, and you can see the the sort of increase in in individual and local organisational. Um, um, joining in with the project. So something that starts as this small group of people, even the actual management group now is much, much bigger and, and still has a good representation from across the community. And it's drawing in people from across Somerset. We don't have, it's a, where we are is quite a, a rural county. And so it's, um, it's very interesting to see something of that level uh, that is of a national or international standing and, and, Yes, I think that does generate pride. I mean, there's another good example from the, Andrew mentioned the transition town movement. There's a good example from a small Somerset town just off the M5 going heading south called Wellington, which is um, uh, the local transition town group involved with a, a local community interest company and the local town council and the, the district council have all worked together over a, a number of years to bring a, a, a large field which was used by the community for sort of dog walking over the years, um, but also owned by a local farmer into public ownership through a very, you know, not too arduous process, actually. It, it worked quite well. Obviously, it's very dependent on that farmer being open to selling his land at a reasonable price to the local community. Um, and the land being best suited for that and not for, for growing food on. And that has been amazing. They've now gone forward to uh, research and learn about forest gardening, which is where you, you um, grow at different levels and specific plants on a specific um, kind of soil. So you grow everything in its best place in order to make the best productivity you can. And the idea is to join that piece of ground up with all the other bits of community land which the transition town group already work on around this small town so it might be just one tree in a particular on a on a, on a lonely corner of of a of community ground or it might be something on the edge surrounding a school or, or 
all sorts of little snippets of land have been drawn into this. Now they have a local food map of where you can go and help yourself to produce around the town for free. And I think things like that and the, the, this uh, forest garden developing have really raised the, um, the idea, the possibility, which I think is very connected to hope. They've raised people's uh, feelings of hope about what a small group of people can do in a small community with not much or no money. Great. Um, lovely, lovely story. And, and the hyper-local, I think, is really interesting there because that's how we experience our own lives at, at that kind of level. Um, Andrew? An interesting parallel to show that what Nikki was describing as something that would ha- is happening in kind of a, a fairly rural community um, can also happen right in the heart of a big city. Um, I, I live in London and in just south of me, there's a, an area called Tooting, which is an incredibly busy and highly diverse um, neighbourhood. But a very similar initiative, transition initiative, has been working there trying to connect up green spaces so that there's a kind of an urban green corridor and, and incru- improve access to an area called um, fish ponds, because we know that one of the factors affecting people's health in cities significantly is lack of access to green space. And it's a very, very busy area. Now, the transition initiative gets involved in all sorts of things. It gets involved in food issues. It gets involved in in, in transport issues. And it's this thing around the power of precedent, bringing in the power of precedent, which can help to um, allow people to see, believe in, and therefore work for the kind of change that we talk about. And one of the areas that has been traditionally and remains a very difficult one, because it's perhaps one of our most addictive behaviours in sort of modern Western societies is, especially in in, in, in urban areas, is our, our perhaps unnecessary use of cars. There's all the statistics around the huge proportion of journeys in, in cities which are um, are easily walkable that you know we that we use the, the car for. And one of the biggest problems with um introducing traffic reduction me- measures is that they almost always trigger a, a loud minority very negative backlash. Now we did some work um, associated with the Rapid Transition Alliance on car-free cities or car-free megacities, as we called it. And we looked back over the course of the last four or five decades. And in situation after situation, in country after country, the same pattern repeats in that there is a proposal to improve the quality of life, the quality, air quality and the conviviality of, a, of an urban area by introducing traffic reduction measures. There's a huge backlash in which people think it will be negative for the local economy. Um, it'll lead to wider other problems. But in the circumstances where local authorities have sort of stuck to their guns and, and, and shown municipal courage and followed through, the same thing happens every time. The measures are introduced and within a very short period of time, people adapt and nobody wants to go back to how things were before. So this thing about getting over that bump of change that you were talking about before, using the power of precedent, and we can see lots of ways in which we can ease the process of change through the right amount of the right way of kind of consulting people, explaining what the what the evidence shows, what the very hopeful evidence shows, is that these changes can be made and can and can lead to great improvements. And in numerous circumstances, the very opposite of the fears occurs when you remove traffic from the urban areas. You actually attract people, more people, into the, um, the the local areas, and it's better for local businesses, and obviously it's better for health. And if at 
the same time, we are enabling active travel, making it safer and easier for cycling, partly by removing the the, the traffic congestion, um, and making it easier for people to walk and thinking about our urban design to create access to essential services. Then you've got a huge sort of multiple win for people. Yeah, it struck me um, that in the in that point that. In the mid-80s, when we were burning lead in petrol, or putting lead in petrol, because that's supposed to be a good thing, uh, within a year of changing the financial um, incentives um, on on petrol, a 10p difference per litre, everybody had changed. But beforehand, nobody could imagine driving without lead, because that was supposed to be a good thing, and clearly wasn't. And that was just a one-year shift, once you'd got across this kind of bump in the road, as you talked about. Could, could we come a bit to story then? Because I think the kind of power of story is something um, I'm interested in. I know both of you are interested in. How do we develop this thing of story, the power of president, the capacity to spread ideas quicker than the impact of the climate crisis or quicker than the rate at which we're getting rid of fossil fuels? Those are all slowing up sadly, um, and and perhaps tragically as well. But we've got to kind of create stories with moral content, guides for living well, um, guides for surviving, and, and a guide for creating agency at the same time. So it does strike me this notion of you've both been storytelling about specific places, which is, I think, something we've always done. People have sat around the fire and the hearth and told stories um, uh, about what they've done, which then have a kind of moral content and agency from that. So it does strike me that there's a there's a kind of strong component in, in what you've both been saying about story, and this ties into the hope uh, as well, the evidence of hope. One of the other very specific things that Nikki and I have both been involved in from the start is a little sort of side hustle of the New Weather Institute and the Rapid Transition Alliance. We've um, been literally retelling um, classic folk stories. We've now published four collections of what we call modern folk tales for troubling times. And the initial inspiration for that was that we both know a lot of people who work with facts and figures. They work in economic policy or health policy, climate policy. Um, and we're, we're acutely aware that as a broader movement arguing for change, that we had to become better storytellers. And of course, one of the common denominators about a lot of folk tales is that they very often emerge in extreme times, whether it's the Hundred Years' War or, 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 or whatever. And they're very much about assimilating that extreme experience and trying to find a kind of a way through. And obviously, they're very often full of um, moral tales as well. So, we invited a range of our sort of friends and contacts to just experiment with um, writing fiction about the things that they loved. And it's, I'm personally, I found it incredibly liberating. You can literally make it up as you go along. You don't need footnotes. It's a wonderful thing to do. And when you get into the flow of storytelling, it does help you sort of process and pattern in a different way the challenges and you can in a much more sort of um a less didactic way you can kind of reveal possibilities for change as well i think so personally you know diving deep in and having a forage amongst our sort of our, our our collective folklore and then repurposing it for um current moments i've personally found extremely satisfying 
Very interesting. I mean, there are 500 versions of Cinderella across Europe. Um, they've emerged in different places with the same kind of core story, rags to riches, um, opportunity, threat, um, changing kind of social mobility. It clearly connects with people because otherwise it wouldn't have emerged in 500 different places with different components to them. So there's also a Tuscan proverb, um, a tale is not beautiful if nothing is added. So tales begin in one place and then as they're being retold, they change as people add something to them. They become more beautiful by the kind of public engagement in the, the tale itself. But again, you've got to create that thing in the first place so people can hear it and tell it and then tell it onwards. And Nikki, your thoughts on that? No, I was just going to say, I think that the, the magic of story is that is actually how similar they are across the world. You know, if you look at Chinese myths, you look at Greek myths, you look at um, North American natives, um, myths. There's 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 things like creation. There's life and death, and brothers killing each other, and all all sorts of gruesome stuff going on. But also lots of interplay with the natural world. And I think those all those things are things that we see today. All of us recognise them. We might in our current world have have put some of them to one side as if they're not fundamental somehow. You know, we we today it's as if. Our, our policy and our technology is what drives us as human beings. But really, it's rubbish to think that we're driven by love and hate and life and death and birth, just as we ever were. You know, we are animals and, and that's how we interact with each other. And, and the rest is just a structure of some kind around us. And I think that's so that's so interesting to me, the way that it, story brings us together in a way that very few things do. And, mm. and I think that's why the importance, of, the importance of what we call art, you know, the creative process is so key to us moving forward. I, I don't actually think we can move forward without it. Mm. So I'm thinking, uh, Andrew, sorry. I was just going to say, speaking of animals, I, I had great fun rewriting Red Riding Hood from the point of view of the wolf. <laughs> Um, and, and also had quite good fun with the seven league boots and uh, most recently the uh, elves and the shoemaker. Um, it, it, I, I really recommend other people have a go. If you don't think you can tell a story, just take the, the rough shape of a classic folktale and, and rewrite it. It's immense fun. Hmm. And many kind of relatively contemporary ones of the last two or 300 years echo the social norms of the time. I mean, Maria Tatara's produced her book on uh, um, the, uh, the, the thousand and one heroines um, to make the point that actually a lot of these kind of more recent tales are, are very male oriented or have particular tropes about women. And there are ways of overturning that. Madeline Miller's Circe turned Circe from the witch to the hero. Um, but I think there's something about these kind of heroic journeys, um, as you were saying, Nikki, the transitions in our own lives from small school to big school, big school to college or your first job, um, to partnerships, to children, eventually to death. These are all these kind of great transitions, but they're the same thing as we've talked about uh, around the transitions that we need deliberately to be helping to happen quicker than they've probably ever happened before. I mean, that's going to be kind of part of this transition challenge, isn't it, with stories, is telling them in a way that echoes quite quickly. I think it's worthwhile re-remembering the pandemic, which seems sort of to be in some way still here. I heard you know, it's, it's still around very much and obviously threatening us still in the future. But our learning as a 
as a human race from the pandemic was of many things. But one of the hopeful things that was learned from it was that we are very resilient and we are very cooperative. You know, on the small examples that we saw at the community level, people literally turned on a, on a penny and helped each other out within a matter of hours or days, way before government stepped in and did anything. People were self-organising with helping deliver medicines to people, help, helping with food, helping childcare, with transport, all sorts of basic day-to-day -day things. And I think it's just important to remember that. And we try through the Rapid Transition Alliance, we've done a body of work on this, trying to pull together what is our joint learning from the pandemic in an effort to hold on to some of that, because I feel the danger is it slips away and we become back to some idea of whatever we think normal is. And also it makes change seem harder, whereas we literally showed ourselves that change is fast change at scale is possible. We did it. Mm. I think I think we find it hard to to look back at something that was so painful and so recent, the whole pandemic and lockdown, and pull good things from it. I mean, it still seems to be a kind of culturally difficult space to go into. And yet, quite evidently, there was a tremendous amount of kindness, togetherness, social interaction, support, um, uh, love for others um, in the way that the political spheres find really difficult to recognize. I mean, they would rather it kind of all went away and you pretended it didn't happen. And yet I think there is an importance in all these big changes, as you were saying earlier on, Andrew, to draw out these kind of commonalities, which we can then use normatively for the next big changes that, that, that challenge us. And I think there's a meaningful long tail to the experience of the pandemic, even if it is falling below the level of visibility. I think working patterns have permanently changed in a lot of um, relatively wealthy countries. I think the, many of the mutual aid groups that were set up during the pandemic are, have found a permanent place in community life and are still going. I think people, the deep questioning that went around on sort of the purpose of life and the balance between how we want to be you know, desk slaves as opposed to sort of living perhaps more flourishing lives. I think that shifted. And I think it's going to be very difficult to forget some of the social experiments, which ha which were accelerated. Um, things like universal basic income, the big economic questions about how do we meet people's basic needs in such a way that everybody can flourish and enjoy a, a, a relatively a relatively good life. Um, and I don't think we'll, um, although it was perhaps a little bit of a cliche, um, if you close your eyes and think back to that time, I think to the early moments in the centre of London, when the streets really did go quiet, and you really did hear birdsong more clearly, and you saw people um, out uh, in using whatever green space was available to, um, you know, to take their walk and, and, and interact. And it, I think it's left this really deep and lasting impression. I think it shifted people, even on a very practical level. Um, flying for business is never going to be the same again. It's permanently depressed. Why? Because from both the perspective of the person who was asked to fly for business and the business that was paying for them to fly for business, by not flying and by jumping on Zoom instead, you're saving carbon, you're saving time, and you're saving money. So there was a kind of a really big win. And it took that disruptive event for people to kind of like take a step back and go, oh, we can do this better. And I think we learned how to do a lot of things better. And I don't think that will really go away. Mm. Uh, Nikki? One big thing just um, came into my mind when you were talking about in how 
minds can shift during these times of transition. That was the Black Lives Matter um, movement. And I think that somehow a space emerged, obviously stimulated by horrific events, but those horrific events have always happened. And somehow during the pandemic, were people more able to listen? Were they less able to escape from the reality that um, black and brown people across the world are, are, are oppressed and have been for a very long time and those systems still sit there and we all kind of pretend they, that they don't? And they, those conversations and that sort of language, I feel, is becoming much more... Um, it seems to have made a bit of a jump, not a huge, it's not all right, but it's made a jump into our mainstream conversation that, you know, diversity does not mean having somebody with, you know, the right proportion of people with a certain skin colour on your board. You know, that, that is not diversity. Diversity is, is changing the way that you look at history and acknowledging what's happened and wanting to build a better future together. And although we're at the very early stages of that, I think it's, I think something was able to shift because of that huge other transition that was happening at the time. And for me, that is actually a, a, a shining point of hope that's come out of something quite horrible. Uh, I agree. Um, Andrew, uh, to finish off, um, a year ago, we walked around the Essex marshes on a river wall on a muddy a day towards the old battleground of the Battle of Malden, which was uh, more than a thousand years ago, and started to explore these ideas of of, of hope and hope tales and storytelling that's that's tied to that. Um, and we talked a bit about about the difference of of reducing bads and increasing goods, um, the good things in life and stopping the bad things, and um, how both need to happen, but how in stories to create kind of inspiration and hope that you're going to be talking more about creating the goods and hoping that in doing that, that the bads will kind of slip away because they'll look irrelevant, just as you described the bird song in the middle of London, that if you make that change, then we can focus less on, on um, having to wear a hair shirt, having to suffer to make the world a better place. You say we can just make the world a better place by doing these sorts of things. I mean, do you think that there's, that we've made some progress, we not just the three of us, but collectively wider, some progress in, in transitions towards that kind of understanding of what we can talk about in a way that makes people feel as though they're part of the whole thing. Um, back in 2008, when we were still living through the financial crisis, which if we think back to that time, it wasn't only a financial crisis, it was also um, a climate crisis, there were extreme weather events going on, there were major global crop failures going on, there was the energy price spike. Um, we, we did a couple of things. One is, we, we, we published the first, we wrote and published the first version of the Green New Deal as a way of trying to imagine a really practical policy mechanism that was win-win-win. It was about, you know, insulating yourself from volatile energy costs. It was about refurbishing people's homes so that they were comfortable uh, and, well, and well insulated. It was a crea about creating jobs in every constituency in the country. Um, but we also published a, a book called uh, Do Good Lives Have to Cost the Earth, which was a collection of contributions from all kinds of people, including one future, um, future prime minister. Um, and uh, the resounding answer was no good lives 
don't have to cost the earth. And in fact, many of the things, many of the changes that we need to make in order to be able to preserve um, ecosystems and nature so that everybody may um, may, may live well and, 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 and flourish are things that make our day-to-day lives better. They clear our air quality. They um, make our streets less dangerous. They give us healthier food. They give us cleaner energy all these kinds of things. So I think it's it's, it's a fairly simple question. Um, I think that for the vast majority of people alive today, making these changes does not mean sacrifice. And the only people for whom it might feel like it means sacrifice are people who have become accustomed to such high levels of consumption, to taking for granted that they can you know, fly halfway around the world for a, a weekend mini break and have four SUVs parked outside and TVs the size of swimming pools. I think, yes, there are a few people who might experience um, the transition as a challenge to their way of life. But I think for the vast majority of people, the changes that we're the stories that we're telling about um, a, a better life available for all by living in a way which is more in tune with nature and more equal is a win for almost everybody. Thank you. That's great. Uh, Nikki, uh, we can get hold of the various reports and materials, the folk tales, the chapbooks, um, the reset series and, and so forth on the Rapid Transition Alliance website. That's the place to go for them. Yes, that's the best place, rapidtransition.org. And um, yeah, what Andrew said, let's just do it. Mm. And so a final word on hope then from your side. How are we going to find this way of bringing people together to make the changes fast enough? I mean, that's what we've been talking about really, I suppose, isn't it? I think, to be honest, in in many, many places around the world, we're already seeing it. I think in, in people are often at the moment ahead of their governments. And uh, again, a very small local example, uh, citizen science happening here in the UK. Huge issues with the water companies polluting, pouring raw sewage into the rivers. All those issues are being highlighted by, discovered by and publicised by people going out with plastic containers and testing water outside their, near their homes using very simple water testing kits. And it's become a national issue and everybody knows about it. And I don't think the UK is alone or unusual in that. I think you know, it's, uh, communities and individuals coming together, that's the important bit. It's not individuals acting on their own mostly, it's individuals coming together in some kind of community and it can be local or it can be a, 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 an online or global community across a theme, coming together in order to make stuff happen and then governments are having to catch up. Lovely. I think I think my my last thought on hope I will defer to the great writer Rebecca Solnit who says that um, hope isn't a lottery ticket you can stick in your pocket and sit on the sofa and just kind of wait for something to happen it's an axe you use to bash down doors in an emergency and I think the challenge for each of us is finding kind of which axe we want to pick up what's the issue what's the thing which most mobilizes us that most motivates us and then and as Nikki says get out there and do stuff lovely Thank you very much indeed. Nikki Saunter, Andrew Sims from the Rapid Transition Alliance. Been a delight to have you on. Thanks very much indeed. That was Louder Than Words. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can.